You are listening to the Zookeeper Stories Podcast with your host, Matthew Price. The goals of this show are to share the stories of animal care professionals around the world, give advice on how to get to the field, and share information that will help out new zookeepers. One of the most common questions people in our field are asked is, how did you get your job? I hope to shed some light on that question and many more by investigating the origin stories of the people on the front lines of the animal care world, the zookeepers. And welcome back to another episode of the Zookeeper Stories podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Matt Price. And today I'm extremely excited to talk to uh, a relatively new keeper, been in the field for just over two years. Uh, so it's going to get us a little bit different perspective than we've had in the past from uh, some of the guys with uh, and, and gals with, uh, you know, 15, 20, in the case of Connie Carson, 42 years of experience. So it's going to be a, a fun show. Um, before we get to Blaine, though, I do just want to apologize if there's a whole lot of background no- noise uh, for you guys. I do have some construction going on in the apartment next door to me. So if you hear any saw noises or banging and stuff like that, I'm going to do my best to edit it out. Um, but uh, just bear with us and uh, we'll get we'll get through this. So I do want to go ahead and introduce Blaine Peluso Miller. He is currently a zookeeper at the Abilene Zoological Gardens in Abilene, Texas, uh, where he has been for a year. How's it going, Blaine? Pretty good, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's great to talk to you. Anything exciting happened in your day today? No, it was actually my day off, so it's been pretty quiet. This is the highlight of my day right now. (laughs) Nice. I like to hear that. So uh, we'll go ahead and dig in then, man. Uh, Usually the first first question I like to ask people is, you know, how did you come to fall in love with animals and, and when and why did you decide you wanted to do it as a career? Uh, The animal thing has always been my thing. I was a shy kid growing up, so people were not my favorite thing to deal with. Um, My family, super animal crazy. My mom's a huge nature person. My dad's a a game hunter, so I got a lot of conservation stuff from him. My great-grandmother, who's passed, she actually took a lot of small uh, North American like rodent mammals and would hand rear them. A lot of them were attached to her for years. That's basically where I got my start. What age uh, was that? Was that all happening? Super young. Like my mother first exposed me to wildlife probably when I was three or four years old. She would just sit me outside and say, "Go do something." <laughs> where where were you? Uh, where were you at at that time? Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Monroe Township, New Jersey, Central Jersey, about an hour or so outside of Philly. That's uh, is that's bear country, right? Uh, New Jersey has, I think, like the highest per square mile uh, number of black bears or something in the country, something crazy like that. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. I mean, right now I have a, a mother that comes back to my old property every two or three years like clockwork and she gives birth literally in my backyard. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, I, uh, I went to a, uh, the Advancing Bear Care Conference in 2013, I believe. Uh, out there in Clinton, New Jersey. So uh, I got to go to a, a rehab facility out there. It was pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> uh, I get off on tangents quite a bit, uh, as the listeners are sometimes know. Um, but anyway, let's get back to that. So uh, your your family, your mother and your dad were, were pretty influential in your uh, in the early part of your life in terms of uh, your exposure to animals. Um, what happened? Uh, what happened next, man? Um, I went through the motions. I mean, your typical just kid growing up I was always outside and if I wasn't outside uh, Steve Irwin was my babysitter 
I spent a lot of time watching that man. I'm a child of the 90s, so automatically your number one conservation conservation person, naturalist, was the Irwins, and that's what it was for me. It was this crazy guy just doing everything he wanted to do, and I'm like, I can do that. I want to do that. Maybe not so much with venomous reptiles, but everything else in <laughs> the game. Um, then it went to college in my late high school years, and I'm like, I got to figure out what I want to do. And I'm like, I want to work with animals. The vet route was not for me. I didn't have the time, the patience about that. And I just said, you know what? I want to be a keeper. I want to work with exotic animals, whatever aspect that may be. So you decided that in, uh, in high school then? Yeah, probably around my late sophomore year, early junior year, I started taking it pretty seriously, but I was still a 16-year-old kid at that time, so I'm like, I got right. to focus on the now, not so much five years from now. Oh, Back for sure. Now, you got to get but... your... <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, you got to get your grades and everything to get into a good school. So, uh, so when you were looking for college then, or looking for universities, did you, were you specifically looking for like a zoology program? Uh, or was there another like factor in your decision? Um, I was looking mainly for schools that I could get a majority scholarship, if not a full ride. I didn't have a lot of money, so I needed to make it count. That's why I took school so seriously. Um, I got into a four-year program. I wanted to be in the zoo program, but it was restricted, so I couldn't get into that program. So I took what they called a parallel major not so much, but I made it work for what I wanted to do. Okay, so uh, what was your major then? I'm a biology major. I specialized in zoology. Um, it's a four-year bachelor's of science. At, at what university? Delaware Valley University in uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. So not too far from home then. So your mom, mom and dad weren't too sad to, to see you go a little bit down the road, huh? No, I mean, it was... My it was an hour drive by the GPS, and my mother figured I had to get there in 32 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, she did. Uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, far, far, far enough away. You know, not too far, but far enough away. Yeah. Cool. So uh, you went through your four year four year degree there. Uh, what what happened after college? Uh, a lot of people that I'm sure you've listened to and other listeners have listened to episodes where people have struggled. You know, other people have gotten lucky right out of college. Uh, what was your story like? Uh, mine was probably not much different than anybody else's. It, it was a struggle. My college required an employment program, so I started my sophomore year. I couldn't get a job in a zoo. I was struggling just to get a regular job, let alone like one. So I ended up getting a phone call from my grandmother about some crazy guy in a state park, and he said he's looking for people. You should go talk to him. I literally, I drove home. I went to talk to this guy. His name is Jim Fazak. He's the lead naturalist at Cheesequake State Park in Matawan, New Jersey. And I actually owe a great deal to him in my career because that's literally my first legitimate job outside of my family that I got. So I did that for my sophomore, my junior, and my senior year, and then one year post-graduation. And I was doing that every summer. Then it just, it snowballed from there. Um, my family was always just telling me, you got you to plug away, you got to plug away, because 
your your well is dry right now and you're just going to be tossing stuff into this well and then all of a sudden the water is going to come pouring in and you're not going to have the time, the energy, or just the ability to keep up with it. So I was throwing coins into a dry well for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough out there when you're first starting out, especially in this field, but especially for like a recent graduate like you, you know, you're coming in, coming out right at the time where like no one can find a job. So uh, let alone in a zoo industry. So that must've been difficult. It definitely was a factor. I mean, I got out of high school 2009, you had the 2008 crash. Right. I got out in 2013 and every day it was 40, 50, sometimes 60 plus applications to every job, didn't matter what it was. And I wasn't even, I wasn't getting the time of day was for internships as well, even the entry level, because the internship is the new entry level. And after this, because I started when I was still a naturalist at the Cheesequake, I just, I got so frustrated. I'm like, I can't even get an internship. I need to go back to school. So I, in, what was it, December? Yeah, December 2014, I applied for uh, the Animal Behavior Institute to start a professional certification. And literally two weeks after I dropped three grand on the class, I got a call from Audubon Nature Institute for two of their departments, their primates department and their uh, hoofstock department. Um, I talked to both of them. I couldn't get an answer out of the hoofstock department. They said they couldn't get an answer for me, whether yes or no, until like late October. And they wanted me to start in November. If I did get selected, I'm like, I can't wait that long because I have to secure housing and the primates department had called literally a week later and they said, we want you. I'm like, sold. <laughs> so I went down to New Orleans in December. I started uh, there in the primates department. I worked with a fantastic group of keepers. I, it, was a, it was a rough start to the career. In the back of my mind, primates, great apes, they weren't going to make, be my go-to. To be honest with you, I wanted to work with big cats. I still want to work with big cats, but I have to take what I can get and I have to be, I think that's very important for new keepers. You have to be willing to, because the zoos are changing dramatically. It's no longer hyper-specialized keepers outside of the big ones. Your great apes, your elephants, your... Uh, porpoises, dolphins, whales, all those are still hyper-specific, but those are like the only true ones. Every other zoo that I'm seeing, everyone's going to geographics. They are doing Africa, Asia, Australia, South America, North America, Europe. Vast amount of species, and you need to know all of them. So you're not getting one or two taxes, you're getting all of them. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree there. I mean, you've got, like you said, elephant keepers, orang and gorilla keepers, uh, not a whole lot else, really. Um, you know, sometimes carnivore keepers are kind of uh, compartmentalized, too. Uh, but you're, you're, you're dead on there. Versatility is key. And a lot of people think that, you know, you come in and you just work with whatever. But uh, I mean, every every species, not, not let alone every, you know, genre of animals from birds to mammals to reptiles, let alone those being different, you know, the even within mammals and with birds are very different. So uh, definitely requires a lot of training there. I, I, had, I had a similar experience with my first job uh, in the children's zoo, which was a great place to start because, you know, um, the first uh, week, well, 
for you, I'm sure you call them the same thing. We call them strings that we work on. And my very first string, you know, I had a snowy owl and some squirrel monkeys and a duck pond and a, a snake and a kawadi, you know. So just getting that early base, it's been, it sounds like what's what you're doing uh, is, uh, is definitely key to success. Um, but talk for a minute about uh, when you first got that, that phone call and how you felt uh, when you first got that, that uh, invitation to come down and work in the primate department. Three things went through my head. It was, yes, thank God, <laughs> the, the world is off my shoulders. Second one was, I'm going to New Orleans. How am I going to afford that? <laughs> and more importantly, how am I going to get there? And, you know, at my three years of paid with my naturalist job at Cheesequake, I had enough money socked away, and I knew I was going to blow it all down there just getting there and living there. I knew that going in. I'm like, but I don't have a choice. I have to move halfway across the country just to get my job experience. If I don't do it, they are going to find someone else who d will. Absolutely. And was that, a, was that an unpaid internship? Yes. Both of my uh, internships at Audubon uh, were unpaid. I went from there and then... I made a couple good friends over there. I met one of their hoofstock keepers, and I'll name drop all day. Uh, Ethan yeah, Anderson. absolutely. He's a, he's a great guy. He was one of the guys that brought me onto his side, and I got to meet his male rhino, uh, Saba, his male right, white rhino. And I'm like, I could definitely go over to this department. And what had happened next was my flood into the well. I got the primates internship. One of the hoofstock interns moved over to the primate uh, intern position that had opened up. Uh, she had left uh, just timing. They were only three month terms. And that girl was only in the primate department for like two weeks. And then she got a paid offer at another society. I don't know uh, where she went though. And I'm like, Hey, there's a position open in the hoofstock department. I'm going to go talk to Ethan. And I did. I said, look, I'm already invested down here. If I can extend this, it's going to look that much better for me. And that's what I did. I said, yes, I would start in March. And that actually led into a series of unfortunate events. I had taken an interview literally the day before I was supposed to start at a facility back uh, home in New Jersey, Six Flags Great Adventure in Wild Safari. They called me the day before I was supposed to start, and they said, can you start in April? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, 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 because I had literally just given my word to give the Hofstock Department Audubon, Bill Smith, the assistant curator there, I said, you have me for three months, that's my guarantee. And this was a time in my career because... I had been in the field for literally three months. And I just, I said, what comes out of my mouth next is either going to make or break my career. I took that interview at Six Flags and they said, we want you to start in April. And I said, I cannot start in April. I said, the earliest that I could possibly start is June. I made a commitment down here to a facility that I'm already at. I take my word very seriously. My reputation, my honor is very important to me. I gave somebody my word that they had me from this time to this time. The earliest I could possibly start would be June. 
by if you can let that slide, you will get the same level of dedication that I give to everybody that I work with from June to November because that was also a seasonal position. Five minutes later and said, deal. So I said, perfect. I'll start in June. I mean, that's, I think that speaks a lot to your character that you're willing to honor that because I'm sure they would like to have you in April, but uh, the fact that they're getting someone that they know is so committed, uh, I, I think probably helps you out there quite a bit. I think it did. I mean, and believe me, when I immediately said that, I'm like, I just ruined my career. I said, <laughs> And when I look at it now, the timeline would have been the same, but I think my decision next month of the AZA uh, route between their great apes, their primates, and all their monkeys, and then their large African hoofstock, which also had a nice variety of animals just based on circumstances. Um, they also had access to maned wolf and giant anteater. So odd collection, it just happened to be where the setup was it was right next door to the rhino barn so instead of giving it to their south american keepers they're like you can just have it because it's silly to have those primary keepers walk halfway around the zoo to go to a place where someone already is that's awesome man uh, i actually work re really regularly with a pair of maine wolf sisters right now too uh, i didn't realize that that you did that tell, tell me tell us a little i know we're totally sidetracking here but tell us a little bit about your two main wolves or your main wolves or uh, and your your collection um, well, at Audubon, it was uh, Western Lowlands Gorillas. We had a 1.3 troop of them. And right before I left uh, Audubon, it went down to 1.2. She got, our old female got sent over to Houston to facilitate breeding. Uh, they had a family pair, uh, 1.2 mother-daughter orangs, a pair of simangs, a bunch of different monkey species from North, uh, South America and Africa. Uh, I moved over to the hoofstock department. It was Rothschild and reticulated giraffe, uh, southern white rhinos, eland, uh, zebra, a pair of red river hogs, ostrich, and then a giant anteater and uh, two male maned wolves. Oh, you got males then. Okay. We had two unrelated, unrelated males. Uh, they were just in a holding pattern waiting for breeding recommendations. But I think what really got me into that side was the in, the internship for the hoofstock department was a lot more hands-on when you got through your training, which I know that Bill was very, Bill Smith, the assistant curator, I, this was his baby, his program, and he said, I've gotten to have their interviewers at positions after they leave. They call him all the time. They say, you let your keepers work. Uh, supervision free with code red animals. I worked red river hog, zebra, and ostrich. Those were the interns' responsibility after proper training. Thing for me, I wanted not only that trust but that responsibility. That's very important to me. I'm a firm believer in you. The only way you can learn is by doing. Oh, absolutely. And you I, I learned that you way too. Just by watching somebody do something, you're gonna soak it all in but until you actually do it, you're not going to know your cues you're not going to know how you're going to react no i totally agree with you uh, i 
I, I mean, that's how they want you to learn first. Like usually, at least for in my experience, the first uh, day or two of training, usually the, I guess like the first day is just, just you hanging back and watching and that's great and all, but uh, I don't, I definitely don't soak it up when I'm doing that. Like I, I feel like almost feel awkward in those situations, you know, like I feel like I could do something, I could totally help you out, but my training says to sit here and watch you for day one. You know what I mean? And then once you get into it and actually doing the work yourself, and then once they finally sign you off and you get to go on your own, that's when you really start to fly, I think. Definitely. And that's what happened to me. And that was just, I think just the level of trust that was granted to me. Cause he told me flat out, you screw up, you're done. And I'm wow. like, okay, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> No, I mean, that's how I've always thrived. That's always been me. I am a trial by fire guy. I believe in here's the rope. You have two choices. Pull yourself out of the hole or hang yourself with it. Those are your two choices. Right. Um, let's go back for just a minute because uh, I don't want to gloss over uh, this. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't even remember what it was called now. The, uh, the, the master's program or the, the animal behavior certification that you, that you did. Talk about a little bit about that program. Are, are you still doing it even though uh, you already got the job shortly after signing up for it? Yeah, I did complete my first certification. Um, it's a 15-credit, five-course five deal online. I took those. I did those while I was down in New Orleans. That's probably the reason why the bank account was empty. <laughs> yeah. But um, I took three out of those, and I finished the certification right before I was done at Audubon. And then I said, well, you know what? I still need to continue on. So I still have full intentions of doing a wildlife rehabilitation certification and then an animal training and enrichment certification just to turn myself out just a little bit more. The classes they have at that uh, institution on the, on the programs, they're adding stuff on a semi-regular basis. I know they just had an avian training course added. So it's a little bit more, it's definitely in depth. You're getting a lot of exposure to a lot of professionals that are actually still in the zoo world. And a lot of them are educators. I did uh, record keeping, basic animal husbandry, pathology, disease, health, nutrition. Patient. That was actually a fun course for me because that's what I had done the bulk of my career was a lot of educating more than actual keeping. That was the sure. first half of my professional career was just straight up educating what would you recommend, I guess, that is that is that a program that you would recommend like new keepers or people trying to get in the field to go through to help bolster their resume a little bit? Because it sounds like they definitely would help out with just in terms of your knowledge base to be able to better answer interview questions and things like that. I would definitely suggest it. Uh, Animal Behavior Institute actually is a learning partner with the AZA. So everything that's being taught is actually to code and to standard for the AZA. So it's not a bad idea. I'll be perfectly frank. Had I found out about this prior to college, I would have probably considered the certifications over the college degree just solely based on price. Sure. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Right, right. And I mean, it's, I guess it sounds similar, I guess, to, uh, you know, the training zoos like Moore Park and Santa Fe Zoo and things like that. It's just mostly online. Um, yeah, it's 100% online. Then you have 40 hours of uh, required work experience it has to be pre-approved, but they're pretty flexible, especially, if, you know, I mean, the one certification I have is zoo and aquarium science. So you work in a zoo and aquarium, odds are they're going to approve your right, right, right. volunteer time. 
Okay, well, let's bring us up. Is there anything uh, between your time at Six Flags and your current role here? Is there any, any gap that I'm missing here? If not, then let's just go ahead and, and talk about what you're doing right now. No, actually, there was no gap. I mean, from my seasonal naturalist job that went right into uh, the fall of 2014, I had a two-month reprieve before I went down to New Orleans. That was for three months for the primates and then another three months for host stock. I left in May, two-week reprieve before I started at Six Flags in June. I was there until uh, November, second week in November, and I went to Abilene Zoological Gardens for an interview uh, literally the day after I had gotten uh, my seasonal layoff, which I knew was coming, so it was a work in progress. So I got my first phone interview, and a day or two after uh, the contract was up, they said, uh, we want you to come down for an in-person interview, and I'm like, I've arrived, because that's yeah. standard interviewing 101, is I'm in New Jersey, they're in Texas, they have invited me to come down. So that's usually a telltale sign of interested, but barring anything catastrophic failure on your part or you say the wrong thing, shot, a solid shot, 90% at least. It can be scary though, at least uh, for me when I got my current role at San Diego Zoo, uh, they wanted me to fly down and I was without even a phone interview and I was like, could we do a phone interview because... You know, I don't know what my chances are, and I didn't say any of this to them, obviously, but so in my head, oh, thinking, no. you know, I, I don't know what my chances really are, and I don't really have the money to fly down there and fly back if it's not going to be uh, something that I'm going to get, you know, or even have a good shot at, but obviously it worked out, so it's it's pretty cool that you took that leap and uh, and that it worked out for you. Yep, I, I actually went to, I made that a round trip because I wasn't expecting a callback for a couple weeks several weeks, several probably months, and I went to see a buddy in Florida, and I said, let's go to Tampa Lowry for the day, and I can talk to, chat up a couple keepers there, and drop off a resume, and then second night I was at his place, I get a call and say, they said, we are extending a full-time opportunity for you, and I'm like, crap, I'm in Florida, and now they want me to start in two weeks. So then it was a mass panic rush, and I'm like, I have to get everything set. And I started in December 14th, 2015. 15, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I can't man. even keep the dates straight anymore. Hey, I still write. I'm still writing 16 on all my dates, so don't don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, so okay, so you're at Abilene Zoo now. Um, what, what's your current role there? Um, I'm a keeper level one. I work our sh string five section, which is our uh, wetlands of the Americas and Caribbean Cove sections. Um, it mainly focuses on uh, New World taxa. So I work mangoes, uh, a lot of native and exotic waterfowl from North and South America, a couple different swan species, some screamers. They're really fun. Then my Caribbean Cove section is three macaws, two blue and gold, a scarlet, a pair of squirrel monkey brothers and a pair of cotton top uh, tamarind brothers, uh, goody, channel bill, and keel bill toucans, prehensile tailed porcupine, and then a pair of paras. 
I love the Coendus. Those guys are so great. Uh, I worked with a with one of those as an intern at San Francisco Zoo, and uh, one of my favorite animals of all time for sure. Um, well, that's cool. So, are you uh, are you like the primary or five day keeper for that area? Or are you doing a swing or relief uh, for for the primaries, and you kind of switch around based on their weekends? I'm a four day primary for that section. On my fifth day, I cross over on our string four, and I also float with our Africa Mammal Department. I help with their giraffe and large herd it tripled in the past two years <laughs> so they need a little <laughs> bit of help it's a little short staffed but i help with our string four which is our uh, mainly our primary uh, north american birds some birds of prey a couple rehab birds but also a pair of cory bustards herd of three blue diker and a pair of red river hogs and then also on top of that is rehab duties. So we have a wildlife rehabilitation program here at Abilene. So I help out with that. And then on short days when I'm doing my Sunday route, which is string four, I also help in the back, which is a bunch of other small birds. And then uh, Atwater's Prairie Chickens as well. Another big program down here for us. That's our, our go-to SSP, uh, especially down here, you know, Texas represents everybody's got prairie chickens in the major Texas zoos. It's kind of <laughs> our staple down here. You got to do it. Sure. Well, that's awesome, man. It sounds like you are on the right track, uh, you know, getting experience with a hugely diverse collection there. So I guess my next question is, uh, I guess, what's next for you? It sounds like you're working a lot of birds. Is that something you envision yourself working? And is it something you want to continue doing? Or are you really a pretty gung-ho about getting over to big cats like you mentioned earlier? Um, you know, like I said, I'm young in my career. I'm not opposed to working with anything. Birds was definitely not a place where I expected to be, but that was also one of my responsibilities at Six Flags. It was a lot of reptiles, small domestic cuff stock. Again, that seems to be the reoccurring pattern with my career. But the birds definitely gave me experience, and it was definitely something that followed through. I'm Looking back, I look through all the animals I work with, and I look for patterns. That's how my mind works. And the only thing that was consistent between all of my employments was the giant anteater, the small, small North American mon or South American monkeys, and parrots. That's arguably how I think I fell into my my role here because I had all that prior experience, and I think that's that's all it takes. Is like I said, you had to expose yourself to a large variety of species because you don't know outright what someone else is going to have in their collections. You can look at all their websites, you can find out exactly what they have, but you don't know what you're going to fall into later because collections are always growing, they're always improving, and ironically our 15-20 year master plan here at Abilene actually in the next probably year or two involves giant anteaters. I've already had our mammals uh, supervisor come ask me about questions about them just because she knew I had worked with them even for a little bit and was very limited in both situations, but I had still worked with them. So she won my opinion on a couple little things. That's great. Uh, the fact that she was willing to come in and talk to you about that uh, says, already says a lot that uh, at least she respected your experience level. I think so. And I think that's one of the benefits that I've seen with small organizations. I mean, we are not a large keeping staff. And I think that's very important for us because everybody knows what everybody else is doing in some respect there's there's a lot of trust i mean at the end of the day it, it's a family and i it's just like zookeepers in general like there's not a lot of us it's in true. the career field so everyone knows somebody 
and everybody has a friend somewhere. Absolutely. I, just uh, just another tangent because that's what I'm prone to. But just a couple of years ago, uh, I was sitting at a uh, in Qualcomm Stadium, which is our big uh, pro state football stadium here. There was a college bowl game, and uh, it was with uh, one of my good friends who was a lion keeper at the time. And he sat there and he said to me, uh, "You realize that out of all the fifty thousand people here, you're the only one that works with polar bears, and I'm probably the only one that works with lions." And it's true. It's true. Like you don't. You, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, it, but but what you just said resonated with me, and that there's not a lot of us, and we know we know someone everywhere once you get into this field a little bit, whether it's meeting someone at a conference and sharing ideas, or you know reaching out to another uh, a zoo for enrichment ideas, or whatever it is, you know uh, you you it is a family. You're right, uh, and and <laughs> uh, as you're talking to other zookeepers, you know you kind of just you know quote unquote get each other, if if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I, I hear it all the time. Like we don't hang out with anybody else because it's weird. It's weird and, for us. Yeah. And our schedules don't match anyway. Right. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Never works out. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm really happy for you. I'm glad your, uh, your career started off the way you wanted. And I mean, it looks sounds it was like it was a little bit stressful early on with the juggling the internships and moving around the country, but, uh, that ability to be mobile is really helpful. And it was helpful for me, and it sounds like it was really helpful for you, too. So just keep doing what you're doing, and uh, I think you'll get to where you want. But uh, before we move on to the next section, I do want to ask you uh, just a couple follow-up questions. Uh, what is the fa your favorite part of the job right now, like, or what is what are you most passionate about in terms of uh, uh, your current role? You know, ironically, like I said, educating has been a huge part of my career, and that started with my first job. And... Jim Fazak, again, I owe a great deal to my whole career for him. Um, three days into my training, he said, you've got a group of 50 people. You're going to do it by yourself. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> I had been on the job for three days. He did two tours with me, and he said, go ahead, do you. And I'm like, all right, that is exactly what I want. And so unlike other keepers, because that was the other thing that I've noticed talking to old school keepers, Zookeeping and zookeepers was an enigma. You, no one knew what they were. You never saw a zookeeper. Zookeepers stuck with the animals, and then you had your education staff who dealt with all the public. Realistically, in the past 15 years, it has gone completely out the window, and zookeepers have to be on the front lines because at the end of the day, nobody knows those animals better than you. Nobody that comes in, no expert, they might know your species and your natural history better than you, but no one knows your individuals better than you. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't have anything to disagree with that. <laughs> How about uh, on the flip side? I know, uh, I know, I know you're, you're relatively new, but is there anything yet that you see in the industry uh, in general that you're not that big a fan of? There's a lot of old school mentality, especially in upper management. Yes, I understand a lot of these people have 10, 20, some 30 years of experience. But I have noticed an extreme disconnect, especially when you've been pulled out of the animal side. I am a firm believer that nobody should be running a zoo unless they started where I have, where you have. You have to start at the bottom because anybody can learn business. Anybody can learn how to handle money. That's relatively not difficult. 
you, I want to eventually, well, my, my dream was to hit that $1.3 billion Powerball and open up a zoo <laughs> rivaling San Diego. That would have been the ultimate dream. And I'll hit that Powerball one day. There was a, there was a movie about it, so theoretically it's possible, right? Yep. Uh, uh, Dartmoor Zoological Park. I mean, that it, it's one of those inspirational stories, and you don't see those a lot in the zoo field. That's clearly a zookeeper story. I mean, it's some guy who had no clue what he was doing, and he bought a zoo that became one of the top zoological facilities, not only in Europe, but probably close into the world. Easily a top 20 in the world. So you can be anybody. It just, you have to take that leap and just figure it out on the way down. I definitely agree. I'm glad you came back around to the, uh, the to about talking about your experience with public speaking uh, as a zookeeper. Because I remember you mentioned earlier that that ne doesn't necessarily your your favorite thing, but it is a, a huge part of the job. Uh, I was fairly nervous about it when I first started out too, but uh, eventually you realize that at least for me, you know, for me, like I, I feel like if I'm not educating the public in addition to providing excellent care for the animals, that, you know, maybe those animals are better off in a, in a different scenario. Maybe they're better off in a sanctuary or a, a private facility that uh, doesn't have public coming in. It really is a huge part of our job now to help uh, and educate people and connect people with animals and wildlife because that's, that's, uh, that's, how, that's how people learn about things and care about things is when they get those kind of experiences. Uh, I'm sure you get the similar, had a similar experience with your Maine wolves, but uh, I ask a question at our Maine Wolf Keeper talk almost every day. Uh, that it that says uh, you know by, by a show of hands you know tell me if any of you guys ever seen or even heard of a main wolf before and even when there's hundreds of people out there we generally get one or two or three so awareness is key and, and that's a big part of our role and that speaks a lot also a lot going back to your uh, you know the, the the quote unquote old school keepers you know they uh, you got to love them because there's a time and place for everything all of their experience and you don't want that experience to go away but at the same time you have to be be realize that the zoos, zoos are changing and, and education and conservation uh, education is going to be a huge part of it going forward and it's really how we're gonna we're gonna stay alive in, in the industry so uh, I'm glad you got there and uh, I think uh, you know you'll get over that or nervousness to nervousness too and eventually it'll become you know one of your, at least for me it's one of my favorite parts of the job now is getting to see like a kid's face light up when you're talking about the polar bears or they go up to the they go up to the viewing underwater viewing and they put their hand up and the polar bear puts their hand up you know that's the kind of things that that I draw on now for my day-to-day because -day, you know once you get such such a you know, once you build a background, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff that maybe necessarily was what got you through in the, in the beginning, you know, that really cool inter animal interaction or seeing an animal play with an enrichment or something, that stuff, you know, it's, it's still very exciting as you go through your career. But, but for me now, the rewarding part of the most rewarding part is really uh, just seeing those kids' eyes light up or even an adult, you know, asking an intelligent question about something because they're actually genuinely interested in it. So um, I think we definitely share a brain there. I can definitely agree with that, and I think that's the other thing I've actually learned. Don't hand me a microphone. I can't. I don't do microphones. I would rather belt out at the top of my lungs than have a microphone because I'm Italian and I talk with my hands. That microphone <laughs> is going everywhere. So catch my hit. Let me let me scream at the people. Let me just belt out. And I think that's definitely where I'm more comfortable. Sorry, I learned that at Audubon. They handed me a microphone for my mandatory once in the term keeper chat, and I bombed it because 
I don't do microphones. I can't. I, I move too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, recently went to, uh, to, to headset mics uh, in a couple of areas, like at the Wolf Talk, and it's been better. It was still an adjustment. Like, I'll walk in the wrong spot, you know, and the, the microphone will get some feedback and blow out the crowd, and it's super embarrassing. <laughs> or you'll walk into a, like a dead zone, and, it, and, it, and it'll, like, it'll cut out, like, three or four words in your sentence or something. But uh, uh, I agree. I I, I guess I don't have quite as a loud of a voice, so the microphone helps me, but I could definitely see that talking with your hands a lot with a handheld mic. But uh, let's move on to the next section I wanted to talk about, and uh, I only really found out about this because I kind of LinkedIn stalked you a little bit. <laughs> uh, hey, that's what it's for. As we do on the internet these days, right? Um, so I found out that you wrote a cool four-part article series called Zoos and Zookeepers, uh, the roles of, an in roles of an Industry and Its People. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Uh, I do have some specific questions about uh, about it, but talk, just talk about a general, give it an overview, you know, why you decided to write that and uh, what you hope people get out of it from reading it. You know, I, I, I tend to write and I tend to talk when I'm going through extreme stress. I've found that it's easier than going to something a little bit more destructive. I bury myself in my job, my tasks, my animals, but I've also found that I enjoy writing. I mainly started that series, uh, the first one was in the middle of October, I think I first started that, and I finished by November because I was doing about a post a week just to see reactions, and it was mainly because I believe it was another anti-cap backlash for something that had happened and I got frustrated because when you have the opportunity to speak and as a scientist now more than ever scientists need to be speaking out more and we never have I never saw outside of the select people that I've seen and I know write constantly but it's not their full-time thing I said we need to get just one one more voice. It doesn't matter who it is. So I did that four-part series just as a, a beater series. I wanted to see, you know, what would happen. So it was history. Then it was the standards of the AZA, what makes a good, bad, and dysfunctional zoo, the education, conservation, and what actually goes into it. And then my fourth part was just a, a simple wrap-up of what is a keeper and I'm going to plug in uh, another connection of mine, Kyle Kittleson. He asked me to do a piece, basically what we're doing, like what, what it takes to get into the animal care field. What is it that the public does not see or does not get? Because, I mean, you've been in the field a long time. How many times a day do you get, I would love to have your job. What do you have to do to get your job? That's the, why I created the loving, podcast, you know? That's why, that's why this thing exists. Exactly. And the one thing I've learned is about the loving the job. It, it's flattering. I understand it. But at the end of the day, it's a lie from themselves. It's a lie from the person asking it because what I do, you'd be doing it. Right. So clearly there's, it's not love. It's, it's like. Right. Uh, there's an old and, and, saying, 
And, uh, you know, we talk about this quite a bit, but there's all kinds of things that we do that the public definitely does not want to do. <laughs> you know, they no. see us out there doing keeper talks and interacting with a polar bear or a maned wolf or what, or what have you, but they don't see us in the back, you know, raking a, a huge exhibit for three hours or digging a trench to, to divert uh, rain, rainwater flow or, or, or whatever, you know, that we do a lot of stuff. I like to tell people that this is a very unique field and that you have to be willing to do the dirty work, the grunt work, but you also have to be pretty book smart. You know, you have to know about your animals. You have to be willing to, to learn about them every day. Um, uh, I think uh, like the archaeology field is kind of like that. You know, the people that spend hours and hours on their hands and knees digging and, and dusting off dinosaur bones or, you know, ancient civilizations, pottery or what have you. Uh, but uh, I think we both, those two fields really share that in common, that you have to be, you have to be intelligent. You have to have, uh, the book smarts, but you also really have to be doing, be willing to do that that grunt work, that really hard work. Whereas, you know, throw out any other field out there, uh, you know, that people do, uh, like accountants or uh, uh, lawyers and stuff like that. I mean, there's don't get. I'm not saying that they don't do hard work, but it's not the same kind of physical, difficult, you know, bone breaking sometimes work that that we do in addition to all of the the book smart kind of stuff. Most definitely, I you're again spot on. And it just comes from what I, what I said in my piece for uh, Kyle. It was, this is not even really a job for us. This isn't even a career. This is a service and a duty. Like, this is what we dedicate our lives to. And whether we're here for a year or a lifetime, we, we can't not be doing what we're doing. There's nothing left. Absolutely. That. It's life, right? It's life. It's not just a job. It's not just a career. It's, it's life. Exactly. And it's just scary the way that the world is going. We've lost, what, just shy of 60% of our species in the past 50 years. It's astounding that people, they understand and they know, but I don't think the magnitude has struck them. And that's exactly. terrifying, terrifying to a member of the scientific community that the public sees it and just nothing is going beyond seeing. It, it's tough. It, it's, it's where, for me, I feel like that's where uh, that really connect, like connecting people is the most important part. And, and it's, it's almost impossible for people to get those experiences outside of a zoo. You know, Joe Schmo that lives in uh, you know, rural Iowa or whatever, they're not going to Africa to go on safari to see these amazing creatures, but they can go to a great zoo and, and see the same thing. Uh, you know, obviously not in necessarily in their quote unquote wild setting. I, I personally don't believe there really is any wild left. Um, but it gives them an opportunity to like see something and maybe even interact with it. And that's how you get people to care about things. And that's where the science comes in. I know San Diego has done beyond phenomenal things with both their local and their international. You become a great society when you can blur the line and just say there is no more line. We have to go to everything and we have to do everything with animals that people have never even heard of. I think that's the other thing that especially is with me, like the animals that I relate to are the odd the oddball animals. Show show me your lions, show me your tigers, your bears. They're they're amazing. They're magnificent, beautiful. 
but show me that animal is the oddball that everybody looks at and says, ew, or mm, and walks away. Show me that animal. Those are the ones that often have the greatest stories. I do want to ask you about part two, which is good zoos versus bad zoos or dysfunctional zoos. And I know that's a, a Peter Dickinson thing, who is an amazing person, an amazing keeper, and has plugged the podcast for me a couple of times. So I'm highly appreciative of him. Uh, but talk a little bit about that, like in your opinion, uh, just maybe a quick overview of part two of, of what you think makes a good or a great zoo versus what makes a dysfunctional zoo. I I literally coined right from Mr. Dickinson. He, 40 plus years, 50 years in the industry, I don't think you're going to find another person outside of the major players from the 40s that are not around anymore. You're not going to find another uh, Attenborough. You're not going to find another Goodall, uh, a Rasmussen. You're not going to find a lot of those people anymore simply because they're in the game, but that's what I looked at and I said, we have to replace these people and we are not ready. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. Um, my thing was it, was, it was basically going off what he said, look at what the program, the society or the organization as just a single entity, look what they do. Why are they there? What animals? And look for the background. Look for the tough questions. A good or a great organization knows the answer to every tough question, even the controversial ones, and they know how to respond to them properly. A dysfunctional, they are going to dismiss the questions or they are going to give you the runaround. A proper, good, great zoological society knows the answers knows the reasons why those answers exist and have the solution. Now, whether someone wants to listen to your solution, that's not in your court. That's in their court. Um, and just look what they do as a society as a whole. Wildlife Conservation Society, WCS, with the Bronx Zoo and all those other New York metro zoos. Uh, they are the major contributors to a lot of global projects in addition to San Diego you guys do a lot of crazy crazy stuff and it's it, it shows it shows in those organizations and what I liked to mention was yes while a majority of our contribution dollars to conservation funds only come from maybe 25 zoos does that mean a little zoo like mine is not pulling their weight I don't think so I, I it's probably the exact opposite we're working with on a smaller scale most definitely both in budget, staffing, and just funding in general. You make those big global names when you've been around for a great deal of time. My zoo has been legitimately around for 50 years. We were, in, we were founded officially in 1966. So we just passed our 50-year mark, but we're still a small local zoo. Big projects in addition to our Atwaters uh, Prairie Chicken program was our uh, Coquille project. Mm -hmm. um, it's a three-phase study for uh, the Lorano Koki, if I remember correctly, um, which is a critically endangered, one of the many critically endangered Kokis in Puerto Rico, and that's our little pet project. It's three phases. We're breeding the red-eyed Koki, which is the most common frog on the island, 
to build a proper care manual. That way we don't have to play God with the critically endangered one, which I think my reptile supervisor said there's a couple hundred at best. And that's our eventual workup. We've gotten almost a 100% success ratio with the uh, red-eyed cookie. And now we're slowly moving on to phase two. And I believe it's the grass cookie. With our endangered cookie, which is more uh, related to the Lorano. And that's our next phase. So we're doing species that are a little bit closer to not only our reptile supervisors, uh, he's, uh, he's Puerto Rican, his family's from Puerto Rico, so he spent a lot of time learning about those species. So that's a very important project to him just because it's, it's national pride for him. And that's where, um, that's where we need to be just based on project. He's, they've done fantastic with it. Um, and it's just, it's moving through the motions. Science takes a long time. We can't snap our fingers and say, we just saved the species. It doesn't work like that. So tell, tell me this then. This is a question that I thought of while, you're, uh, while, you're, we were, while you were speaking. Uh, what do you say to a guest that comes up to you and says, why do we care about some frog? Like, what, what's the point of saving that? Why do I need to invest my resources in that? Why would I, you know, ever care about that? You know, what do you say to someone like that? Uh, with, you know, because you want to be able, you want to come off positive. You want to be able to educate the guest, uh, but sometimes you get those questions and you're just like taken aback, like, I don't really even know, <laughs> you know, if you don't, if you don't see it, I don't know how to tell you that. Uh, so what, how do you, how do you navigate that if you get a question like that? You know what the funny thing is, I mentally prep myself for the crazy questions. Um, a couple of you ask any of my coworkers, they'll tell you that I'm a walking encyclopedia. I try to figure out everything about anything doesn't matter what it is I know if, unless I haven't heard of it then I I know something I'm not gonna say I know everything but I know a little something at the very least so what I say with the frog thing and this was seen in all kinds of even just the common frogs here in North America frogs are a technically they could be classified as keystone species they're environmental indicators when you have terrible waterways, terrible water sources, guess what you are not going to find? Tolerant as a lot of them are to environmental changes, they're also the most sensitive. So you know something is going downhill very, very quickly when you no longer have spring peepers or your classic American bullfrog or any, any frog species anywhere in the world. Even the toad species are suffering a little bit too. When you don't have that that indicator, something is very, very wrong. And you saw, you see it in all kinds of research programs, the Osprey program with EDT, the bald eagle, condors. Every major bird of prey, nobody knew what was going on until they looked down the food chain. When they saw the fish, which nobody probably thought of, but it was the only common factor in all of those species. So when they deduced that, that's what happened. You figured out that one little species then you can figure it out from there you can climb your way up the ladder yes that takes a lot longer but you have to figure out something at the bottom you can't just jump to the top and think you're going to figure out the whole problem by looking down 
right? It's the it's the proverbial, you know, the classic canary in the coal mine situation. You know, the canary's dead. You better get out of there. And uh, it's it's the similar situation, like you said, for frogs and reptiles and amphibians. You know, they're very sensitive to their environment, and there's something going on there. Then uh, it's probably going to matriculate up the food chain, uh, and eventually to us, obviously, right? So. Uh, that's great, man. Can you read the, your uh, article series anywhere other than uh, LinkedIn right now, or is that the place where you should send where we should send people so they can go and read that? Um, I did post it on uh, my my Facebook feed, but that was several months ago. The easiest place to find is right on my LinkedIn profile. Okay, yeah. So everybody, go to search for Blaine Peluso Miller, and his uh, the spelling of that name will be in the show notes. Uh, and you can I'll, actually, you know what? I'll just link directly to that in the show notes, so people can just click on the link when they see the show. And uh, can go right there and read that. And uh, I did notice that on part one of the series, uh, you got a pretty prestigious comment there. The CEO of uh, Zoos Victoria commented on on your post and, and said that it was well done and can't wait to read more. So uh, you're already making a name for yourself, man. Maybe you'll be, be my boss soon someday. <laughs> now nah, I'll work for you any day of the week, Matt. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, we're gonna wrap up here in the next five or ten minutes or so. But uh, <laughs> I do want to get to one thing. If if you have one, uh, if if you have a funny or embarrassing story, uh, the audience loves those. Uh, whether it's a, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess a lot of keepers have like a the the animal peed on them in front of the guests or whatever. But do you have anything kind of like that that uh, happened to you either in front of guests or maybe in front of another keeper uh, involving an animal? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's probably my number one when I was at Six Flags. We did uh, public giraffe feeding. So the rules are very simple. Keep your eyes on the giraffe. Just know where they are because we had one big bull male. He's not particularly aggressive, but he knows what he wants. He wants his food. Right. Same as every, same as every animal want, wants, his, wants his treat. So I'm talking to these guests. I'm explaining what to do, and he takes the sweet potato from me. No problem. And he keeps looking for more. And as I'm talking to uh, the guests, his tongue halfway down my throat. <laughs> as I'm talking. <laughs> as I'm talking oh, man. And I'm like, oh, boy. Now I'm going to get sick because God knows what he has. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I've definitely gotten sl- uh, giraffe slime on me before. I've def- not had one down my throat, though. <laughs> especially, considering how, especially considering how long their tongues are. Hopefully it didn't, like, you know, Get, get you to the point where you had to gag or something. Oh, I was pretty much there. It was my first kiss. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny, man. Uh, well, okay, so let's get to the last part here before we close off. You know, I just like to give the guests, you know, kind of a, a soapbox moment to, to get anything you want to off your chest, whether it's words of advice, uh, you know, any kind of researcher or something you want to plug other than the article we've already talked about, or maybe even just something you're excited about going forward. So, you know, you got a couple minutes here, just kind of talk about uh, whatever really you want to, want to, Blaine. I think the biggest piece of advice I have for someone that just got into the field and has been through all the craziness, all the bull, you just have to keep plugging away. You are dealing in probably a beyond highly competitive field. There's people that want to do this just to do it, but then there's people who want to do it as a lifestyle. You have to be that person. I'm currently working with a young woman in our zoo team program. She wants to be a keeper. That's why she's in our program. And she attaches herself to me pretty much at the hip. Why? I am not sure. <laughs> but I, 
I promised all my zoo teams that worked with me that nothing is off limits. There is no question that I will not answer unless I cannot based upon our zoo's bylaws, which even then I say I will give you as much as I can and I will explain why I cannot. And I will never lie to you. I will give you as much information as I possibly can to make sure you make an informed decision, but also so you know what to say when you come under fire because you will in your career. You are going to come under fire for what you do, but you have to rise above that. You have to be smarter than the people coming at you. And you just have to be calm. Uh, and the other thing is, like I said, you just got to keep plugging away. You're going to get your deluge, your deluge and it's going to flood in. And then you're not going to know what to do because everything's going to hit you at one time. And you just have to take one thing at a time and love every single minute of it because you don't know where your path is going to go. You don't know who you're going to meet, but you know you're going to meet somebody and you don't know how that meeting someone is going to affect you five, ten years down the future. We have a lot of great older keepers that are not going to be in the field much longer. They need to be replaced for lack of better term, we need to be prepared as the millennial generation, Gen Y, we have to be ready to step up at any given moment, whether it's leading a team or perhaps leading an organization. I think that's what another tip I leave, not even to new people, but to all the older management. Find a young person that's hungry and feed them. Give them not what they want, but give them the tools to sit where you are because if you don't, they're going to find someone else who's going to and they're going to surpass because that's what they want. They want to be a leader in the field. They want to discover something that's not, not been discovered. They want to do something to make a name for yourself. We have great names in the conservation field and I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be a great name. I mean, I'm going to quote one of my favorite movies, Troy. Um, in a thousand years, they'll be talking about this war for a thousand years. In a thousand years, the dust from our bones will be gone. Yes, but our names will remain. That's what we have to look for. You have to be that name. You want to be remembered for something great. And you have to start somewhere. doesn't matter where, whether you're on the zookeeping field or any other field, or you have to work your way through a part-time educator job, a construction job, anything like that. Anything can lead into this field so long as you are willing to step to the next level and be prepared to jump when asked. And I think that, that's the only thing I can really offer. Absolutely. I, I echo all of your sentiments uh, and I'll add to it, you know, say yes to everything early on. Don't say no to anything, no matter what it is, no matter if you ever thought you were uh, wanted to work birds or great apes or whatever it is that you don't necessarily want to work. Say everything, to, say yes to everything early on because you don't never, you never know where that path's going to lead. Uh, just like for Blaine, just like for me, uh, just like for a dozen other keepers that we've talked to on this show. So um, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Blaine. And and, and I didn't forgot to mention it at the beginning, um, but it's important now because uh, Blaine is the first person I have had on the show that I did not, uh, at least wasn't uh, an acquaintance of 
uh, previously. So uh, I, I was so excited to get your email plate. I honestly was uh, just to be able to, to reach out and get someone else on here that I didn't know before. Because one of the, in addition to you know putting out the, the good vibes and the positivity and advice to new keepers and and uh, sharing the stories of, of, of people. You know, the other part for me that's really fun is just talking to new people in the field that, I, that, that I've never met before and learning from them too. And I, I will tell you right now, I've, I've learned a lot just from, just from that. Even in, even your last little moment here, uh, you've kind of got me fired up again. You got me that, you got me hungry. You know what I mean? It's like you said, feed me, feed me, give me more. So uh, I appreciate all of that. We definitely need more young people like you in the field coming up. Cause like you said, we're gonna have a lot of holes here coming up. And, uh, and it sounds like you're already giving a hand up to the next generation, which I feel is extremely important. And I hope that this show uh, also helps out people in that, in that regard, because uh, we need the right people in here. We, need, we don't need the people that just want to hang out and take pictures with animals all day. We need the, picture, the, the people in here that, that, that want to be in it for the right reasons and uh, are going to you know, commit to it. And, and like we talked about before, make this really their life. Uh, that's really how we're going we're gonna to keep this thing going. So once again, I do want to thank Blaine Pluso, Marilyn. Miller for coming on the show today and uh, and chatting with us and sharing his story. I hope he inspires a lot of you out there to, to come on and share your story too, because I, I love the show. I feel it's like it's important and uh, I want to keep it going. But as I've said a million times, it does not happen without you guys. Uh, at some point, I guess I'll go ahead and have someone on and inter interview me and I'll tell my story. But I really am more interested in, in telling the stories of all the other amazing keepers out there like Blaine. And, uh, you know, they make this world a better place just for being in it. So uh, thank you guys so much for listening again. I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, we'll be back again at some point, hopefully sooner than later with another episode. So, again. Yeah. Please contact me. Blaine did it. You can do it too. It's not that bad. <laughs> uh, we had a lot of fun today. So uh, thanks, guys. And uh, we'll chat with you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast. I hope you learned something about zookeeping and had a few laughs along the way. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. It really helps me to grow the show and continue to improve. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast you can send an email to zookeeperstories at gmail.com or tweet me at zookeeperstory